So here we go. We're, we've arrived at the last uh, section in this uh, series on work. I was talking with somebody last night and they were asking me, how did you figure out all of this? And I said, well, it was a complicated process, actually. I, a lot of these thoughts have been rolling around in my head for a long, long time. A result of some conversations with different people having to do with work. Certainly thinking about the sending out of the wines and Promise Vaughn and, and what a great and glorious time that was, but also wanting to make sure that we understood that uh, those who remain behind and don't go out in that way also have good and great and glorious things to do for the Lord in the place where God has called you. So all of that has been whirling around in the back of my mind, and I was going to try to do it all in one sermon, and that was impossible. So then I was going to not do it at all. And then I realized that I had constructed my own intellectual box and that I needed to break the box, get outside of it, and and turn this thing into a series, and that's exactly what we did. And it took about 15 minutes to figure out the eight-week series. It just didn't take long at all once I broke out of that intellectual constraint. So here we are. We're finishing it up. Uh, Actually, we're not going to finish it today. It is going to roll into next week. The uh, Sorry, the uh, topic today is big And uh, if we didn't roll this into two weeks, what would happen is you'd end up sitting here with your Bibles closed for the entire time, and that's not profitable. So because we're going to spend a lot of time in the Old Testament, uh, and that's an area that is somewhat unfamiliar for many, uh, we need to make sure we open the Bibles together and turn to these passages and look at them. And in the process, uh, hopefully you will gain a new appreciation and love for the book of Leviticus which is one of those books that people's eyes cross when they come to it and, and they go, what in the world is all of that about? But it's really a glorious word from God to us. And so there's much to be learned there. In 2010, we conducted our, uh, our decade uh, uh, census required to be done every decade. And so 2010 was the national census in this country. And the results, the data of that census is available now, and there's all kinds of conversation going on as a result of those census figures. But uh, one of those numbers that is frequently talked about now is the number of people in this country that are classified as poor, those who are considered to be in poverty. And the number that the United States government has published is 46.2 million people. That is one in seven Uh, U.S. residents are considered by the government at this point to be in poverty. Now, we could have an honest discussion. We could certainly have a difference of opinion with regard to those figures as to what constitutes poverty or not, Um, but we could do that another time. I think the important thing is even if the number, you don't agree with the number, it's still indisputable that there are large numbers of people in this country who are economically disadvantaged. And it has grown worse in the extended period of economic downturn that we have experienced as a nation. And so there is a, there is a reality here that there are many, many people who are struggling economically. And generally speaking, in our nation, the approach to this problem is to let Uncle Sam take care of it. Let Uncle Sam take care of the problems. And that results in massive entitlement programs, massive transfer payments where wealth is taken from one group of people and is given to another group of people. And the problem with this approach, uh, this entitlement approach, is that it is driving the national deficit and resultant national debt to unprecedented levels. And it's a problem that cannot continue or the nation will not survive in any way or form that you and I are familiar with. We are are in a moment in history, a bubble in history of exceedingly low interest rates that will not continue. They are far below historical levels. And should the, when the interest rates rise, not should the interest rates rise, when the interest rates rise, the interest payments on the debt that this nation is accruing will crowd out more and more and more federal tax dollars and other essential government functions will necessarily have to be cut. 
That is the economic reality of the situation in which we find ourselves. So something needs to be done. Something has to be done. So let me ask you a question. How does this sound to you? From each according to his ability to each according to his need. From each according to his ability to each according to his need. Karl Marx said that. Karl Marx said that. Marx believed that it would come about, this utopian vision would come about by a a major uh, redistribution of wealth in which the working class would become owners of the means of production and then there would be a leveling such that Poverty, as we know it, would be eradicated. Well, the experiment has been tried, as we know, and the results are in. And a hundred million human deaths later, communism as as an economic and social philosophy has been discredited among all except its most ardent supporters. So that definitely is not the solution to the problem. In order to approach this, we need a good theology. We need a correct theology to approach this problem of poverty. And it begins with a very simple statement. All poverty is a result of sin. All poverty is a result of sin. This is true in a general sense in the fall of Adam and the introduction of sin and judgment into the world. This is true in a specific sense through oppressive social structures that impoverish people. And this is true in a personal sense as well when specific sinful actions on the part of some people cause their poverty, or specific sinful actions on the part of other individuals who oppress those who are poor. But it all is traceable back to sin. That's the reality. What that means is that it's safe to conclude that someday when Messiah comes and establishes his earthly kingdom here, called the Millennium, and in which he puts down sin in which, in which he powerfully restricts sin, that poverty will also be virtually eliminated. The prophet Isaiah speaks of just such a time. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 4, where the prophet's looking ahead under inspiration of God to that future Millennial kingdom, the future kingdom when Christ sits on David's throne in Jerusalem and rules the world. And the prophet says, but with righteousness, he, that is Messiah, will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. There is a day coming, beloved. There is a day coming when the massive problems of poverty that have, that have plagued mankind since the beginning will be no more. But it is not this day. It is not now. We live in a, in a time here and now when it is a very significant problem. And many in the church are, are asking, what can we do about it? What can the church do what is the church supposed to do with issues and the buzzword these days is social justice what is the church to do in the area of social justice and that brings us to our eighth and final topic in the series of biblical theology of work i've entitled it work and welfare work and welfare how do these topics relate to each other. Throughout the series, we have learned that legitimate work done well is a God-glorifying and soul-satisfying endeavor. Isn't that right? 
Legitimate work done well is a God-glorifying and soul-satisfying endeavor. We have learned that to work is to express a portion of what it means to be created in the image of God. It is an expression of our humanity. And consequently, what that means is to deny a person the opportunity to work through either coercion or through economic incentives is to deny that person the opportunity to express their humanity. To express their humanity. It is a very serious question. It is a theological question at its foundation. It is not a social policy question. It is a theological question. Let me ask you this. What would a social welfare system look like were Christ to set up his kingdom here on earth? If God were to establish a kingdom here on earth, what would its social welfare system look like? How would he provide for the poor? Now, it's an interesting question when you think about it. And it's a question that we don't have to speculate about. That's the amazing thing. Is that actually we can know the answer to that question, or or at least certainly a good portion of the answer to that question. And the reason we can know this is because God did set up a kingdom here on earth 3,500 years ago. God established a kingdom here, and it was to be ruled by what we know as the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law. And that that law which governed God's relationship with His chosen people gave a very specific, a very detailed set of rules and regulations by which His people could relate to Him and to each other. To Him and to each other. And this law was an amazing thing, is an amazing thing. And in fact, this This code, this legal code that that governed every aspect of life was so amazing that that the nations of the world of that time would stand in awe and amazement as they looked upon it. Now, how do I know that? I know that because that's exactly what the Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verses 5 and 6. Moses writes there, speaking for God, See, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me. Moses is speaking to the people here. That you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them. For that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, and check this out, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Isn't that an amazing statement? That the nations of the world in the day of Moses would look upon the law as it governed the relationship between God and His people and between people with each other. And they would look on this and they would say, this is incredible. This is so wise. This is so understanding. This is so right in how to govern these kinds of relationships. That's exactly what God designed it to be. It was to be a a magnet to the nations. It was to, to draw people to Israel to come and to see how God relates to humanity. It was evangelistic in that sense. Now listen carefully. I am in no way suggesting that we set up a theocracy here in the United States, okay? Let me say it again. I am in no way suggesting that we set up a theocracy. A theocracy is a state of government in which God is king and he rules through human mediators. I am not advocating that. Third time, I am not advocating a theocracy. Hopefully that won't get edited out, all right? But rather, what I am doing is I am am really following the Apostle Paul... And I am saying that we need to take seriously what God has done, what he has written, 
in the Old Testament because in it is wisdom and understanding. And that there's something to be learned that is applicable to us today. That's what this is all going to be about. We are going to look at what God did historically, and then we are going to extract from it universal principles that that explain and reveal the heart of God and thus are applicable in this very day. Now, how we apply those principles, we will also talk about, now you see why it takes two weeks. Now you know why it will take two weeks. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, He writes there, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance in the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Paul wrote that, speaking of the Old Testament. So Paul says that the Old Testament contains things that we need to know in our day. It was written for our instruction. The problem is is that we are, in large degree, somewhat ignorant of the Old Testament. Well, we're going to work on that a little bit this morning. So here we go. I want to look with you this morning at how work and welfare were related in the Mosaic Covenant so that we can extract biblical principles and then apply them to our own efforts to care for the poor. How was work and welfare related under the Mosaic Covenant? What biblical principles can we draw from that? And then how can we apply those today to our own efforts to care for the poor? That's our big and ambitious goal. Today we will go no further than looking at how work and welfare were related. That's all we're going to get to today, is how is work and welfare related in the Mosaic Covenant. So, let's begin with a little bit of background. It begins like this. The Mosaic Covenant was not based upon a utopian idea that all people are equal in rank and ability. It does not presume inequality among people in rank and ability. In the providence of God, he has made people as individuals. We talked about this last week. He's made some people tall, some people short. He's made some people fat, some people skinny. Some people are smart, some people are not as smart. Some people are are strong and some people are not as strong. Some people are fast, some people are slow. On and on it goes, right? Well, some people are hard workers and some people are not so hard workers, there is just a there is a there is a wide variation in the human condition and the mosaic law the mosaic covenant takes that into account it takes it into account it is based upon the hard reality that within the the sinful human race there will always be economic disproportionality there will always be economic disproportionality, meaning that all people will not have the same economic circumstances or even the same economic advantages. That's just life in a broken world. However, and let me turn you here to Deuteronomy 15. That's where we're going to start. However, it is important that people's attitude toward the disproportionality that exists Always be an attitude of compassion. Always an attitude of compassion. So there are, there are these two truths. One is everybody's not the same. Second, we need to have compassion for those who are more disadvantaged than we are. We need to have compassion. And the compassion, by the way, uh, spills out from an understanding that if you are better off than someone else, it is only because of the grace of God in your life and it has nothing to do with some sort of inherent virtue within you. It is the providence of God. So let's take a look. We'll begin in chapter 15 of Deuteronomy. So we're going to be in Deuteronomy and and Leviticus, beginning in verse 7. Moses writes, If there is a poor man with you, One of your brothers in any of your towns and in your land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand 
from your poor brother. So there you see it. Compassion. Compassion. But you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. It is to be more than a mere pity, a more, more than a mere emotional statement or condition of mind. It is to be an action. It is active compassion. Beware, Moses says, beware that there is no base thought in your heart, saying the seventh year, the year of remission is near, and your eye is hostile towards your poor brother, and you give him nothing. Then he may cry to the Lord against you, and it will be a sin in you. You shall generously give to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all your undertakings. Verse 11. For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore I command you, saying, you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. The poor will always be among you. Jesus says that himself, quoting this. These are the realities of the world in which we live. This side of Messiah's kingdom. There will always be poor among us, and we are to relate with a heart of compassion. These are enduring statements of the people of God. Now, one of the major causes of economic disproportionality is certainly the sinful oppression of powerful people. There is no way around it. It is the sinful oppression of the powerful that causes a fair amount of the world's poverty. Strong men who exert their power and take advantage of those who are weaker than they. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 23, acknowledges this reality. The fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice, Solomon writes. Injustice sweeps away the economic opportunity of many who are poor. That's a reality. And because of that reality, God severely judges his people who participate in such sinful behavior, such crimes against humanity. Turn to the right to the prophet Isaiah, for example, just to understand God's heart in this matter. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 3 Beginning in verse 13. Isaiah chapter 3 and verse 13. The Lord arises to contend and stands to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard, he says. The plunder of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. It's a severe judgment upon the nation of Israel in Isaiah's day that they have criminally oppressed those who were poor and downtrodden in order to enrich themselves. We see the same kind of theme, if you'll turn to the right, to the prophecy of Amos. So it's Daniel, Joel, or Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, right? So Amos chapter 8. Amos chapter 8. Amos is a prophet from uh, south of Jerusalem who travels north to the northern kingdom of Israel, middle of the 8th century B.C., contemporary of Isaiah, and he speaks to the northern kingdom of Israel who at this time were enjoying tremendous economic prosperity. And Amos writes some very hard words under the inspiration of God. Chapter 8 of Amos, beginning in verse 4. Hear this, you who trample the needy, to do away with the humble of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over, so that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath that we may open the wheat market, to make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger, and to cheat with dishonest scales? so as to buy the helpless for money and the needy for a pair of sandals, 
that we may sell the refuse of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, indeed, I will never forget any of their deeds. Because of this, will not the land quake and everyone who dwells in it mourn? Indeed, all of it will rise up like the Nile and it will be tossed about and subside like the Nile of Egypt. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. Then I will turn your festivals into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. And I will bring sackcloth on everyone's loins and baldness on every head. And I will make it like a time of mourning for an only son. And the end of it will be like a bitter day. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. The people will stagger from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east. They will go to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In that day, the beautiful virgins and the young men will faint from thirst. As for those who swear by the guilt of Samaria, who say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Bathsheba lives, they will fall and not rise again. It was a terrible judgment who came upon the northern kingdom, and they were swept away 30 years after this prophecy was given, they were taken off into captivity. God is very serious about those who use their positions of power and authority to oppress the downtrodden, the downcast, and the poor. But I want to circle back to the question of economic disproportionality because it is not entirely a result of oppression. Not entirely. Economic disproportionality is also the result of a good thing, if I can say it that way, a good thing, and that is human freedom. It is the result of human freedom. If people are going to enjoy a measure of, of personal freedom in the, in the governing of their economic affairs, then there are going to be winners and there are going to be losers. Because there are widely varying degrees of ability and temperament. Some will gain. And some will lose. And this is the hard reality of the world in which we live. Perhaps, in my opinion, one of the greatest books penned called The Greatness of the Kingdom has a, the author, Albert J. McLean, has a quote here for you that I'd like to, to read for you, speaking of this very thing. McLean writes, historically, no perfect way has ever been found to reconcile personal liberty with complete economic equality. Let that sink in. Historically, no perfect way has ever been found to reconcile personal liberty with complete economic equality. That means if we are to have liberty, we will not achieve equal results. Equal opportunity, yes. Equal results, no. The reason being that the root of the problem is in the nature of man himself. And consequently, individual action is never wholly predictable. Never wholly predictable. Said in another way, the poor you will always have among you. When Israel entered the land of Canaan, it was called the land of what? Milk and honey. A land of milk and honey. That's just a biblical expression, a, a cultural expression of the day. It's a land of, of economic prosperity and potential. A wealthy land that they are entering into. And as they entered into that land, they, they entered in under certain conditions of God. And these are these, uh, the conditions. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 25 and be reminded of these things. First, God owns the land. God owns the land. Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 23. The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. But For you are but aliens and sojourners with me. When the nation of Israel entered into the land of Canaan, it entered in with the fundamental understanding that the land belongs to God. It is God's land. 
And because it is God's land, he is free to do with it as he chose. And what he chose to do with it is to give it, to break it up, to parcel it out, and to give it a a permanent grant of title to certain individuals and families. God portioned out the land and gave it in, in, in permanence to his people. You can see this in Numbers chapter 27. Numbers 27. It says verse 6, but I think it's probably best if I pick it up at the beginning of the chapter. Numbers 27. Then the daughters of Zelophehad, the, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, of the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, came near. And these are the names of his daughters. Mahala, Noah, Hagla, and Milcha, and Tirzah. They stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest, and before the leaders and all the congregation at the doorway of the tent of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness, yet he was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah. But he died in his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be withdrawn from among his family because he had no sons? Give us a possession among our father's brothers." So Moses brought their case before the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, The daughters of Zelophehad are right in their statements. You shall surely give them a hereditary possession among their father's brothers, and you shall transfer the inheritance of their father to them. Further, you shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. If he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. And if he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his nearest relative in his own family, and he shall possess it. And it shall be a statutory obligation to the sons of Israel, just as the Lord commanded Moses. What's he saying? He's saying that God has given a land grant to this family, and this land grant must stay within the family. And so there is, a, there is a clear and definitive order in when one passes away of where the land goes. But the important thing to remember is that it has to stay in the family. And so you begin with the nearest of relatives and you just begin to fan out until you find a living relative to whom you give the land. Why? Because God has given it permanently to the families. It belongs to them. So they are the owners of the land under God who is the ultimate owner. Now, as the owners of the land, God granted them a tremendous amount of freedom in how to handle this original land grant. They have the freedom to farm it. They have the freedom to abandon it. They have the freedom to rent it. They have the freedom to mortgage it. They have the freedom to sell it. But the one thing they cannot do is permanently surrender it, either for themselves or for their inheritance. And you see that in Leviticus chapter 25. So we'll take, go to Leviticus chapter 25, and you can see this. They cannot permanently surrender the land. They have great freedom with it. They can do all kinds of things with it. But they cannot permanently surrender it. It cannot be done. Leviticus chapter 25 Back to verse 23 and 24. The land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, for you are but aliens and sojourners with me. Thus, for every piece of your property, you are to provide for the redemption of the land. That's the key. You need to provide for the redemption of the land. It cannot be permanently disposed of. There is always, you must provide a way for it to always be brought back into the family. What this means, and here's the key, what this means is is that a person can only impoverish themselves and their family for a limited period of time. They cannot permanently impoverish themselves. They cannot permanently dispose of the original wealth that God has granted them. They can do all kinds of things with it, including many things that are foolish, 
but they cannot permanently impoverish themselves. Now they have freedom, tremendous freedom. And because they have tremendous freedom, it's inevitable that people will make bad decisions. They'll make foolish decisions. It's inevitable that difficult circumstances will come upon certain people and they will become impoverished. They will become impoverished. And when this happens, they are to be helped, God says. They are to be helped by those that are better off than they are. But they are to be helped only as, key point, as they work for it. They are to be helped only as they work for it. Leviticus chapter 19. Verses 9 and 10. Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of the field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyards, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. You are to not clean out the fields. With every last bit of grain, every last piece of fruit from the vineyard, every last olive from the tree, every last grape from the the vineyards, you are to leave what, what naturally you pass over in your harvesting process for those who are poor. For those who are poor. What this means is that under this system, God gave people the ability to fail, but not the ability to starve. That's a key point. He gave people the ability to fail. He gave tremendous freedom. But he did not give them the ability to starve. There was always built into the system a means and a mechanism for people to to have something to eat. To have something to eat. What this means is that God specifically requires that the poor be helped. But he does it, and this is the important thing, he does it in a way that does not dehumanize them. He does it in a way that does not dehumanize them. Why do I say that? Because part of what it means, and an important part of what it means, is to do what? You've been paying attention for seven weeks. It is to do what? It is to work. It is to work. It is not entirely, but it is significantly a definition of what it means to be human. And so to remove from someone the ability to work is to dehumanize them. And so God cares for the poor. He cares for the poor in a very practical way, but he cares for them in such a way that they can continue to express their humanity. That's key. That is key. Listen, this is what God does not do. God does not tax the wealthy in order to redistribute their wealth among the disadvantaged. Instead, what God does is is He requires the wealthy to intentionally leave behind produce in their fields and vineyards so that the poor can come and work and gain for their own needs. Deuteronomy 24 makes it very explicit. Deuteronomy chapter 24. You know, I probably should say here that I understand that this goes completely contrary, cross the, the grain of everything you have ever been taught. The entire system in which you have grown up and to a large degree have accepted unquestioningly. And that is that money should be taken from those who are wealthy and given to those who are poor. But I want you to understand that is not a biblical system. It is not a biblical system. Compassion for the poor, absolutely. Absolutely. Redistribution of wealth by a third party? Never. Deuteronomy chapter 24, beginning in verse 19. When you reap your harvest in the field, and you have forgotten a sheave in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow, and that the Lord, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive tree, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. 
When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not go over it again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this thing. Why does he say that you were a slave? Remember, you were a slave. Because you need to understand that whatever wealth you have, God has given to you. You had nothing. God gave it to you. So what he has given to you, you are to provide a portion of it for those who are in need. It is not to be consumed entirely by yourself. It is, a, it is, a, it is an issue of, of theology. It is an issue of morality. We are not to entirely consume that which God has entrusted to us. Furthermore, God provided a means for the poor to obtain help by borrowing interest-free. God provided a means for the poor to obtain help by borrowing interest-free. Why? Because it prevents their debts from growing while they're trying to repay them. See, that's that's the beauty and curse of compound interest, as it were. And that is, is that as the interest begins to accumulate, you find yourself falling farther and farther behind. And so God mandates that they are to loan money to those who are in need, but they may not charge them interest. This is designed to avoid the slavery, the slavery that, that excessive debt can cause. It, it makes one a slave. Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus 25, verses 35 and following. Leviticus 25 and beginning in verse 35. Now in the case of a countryman of yours, now in the case a countryman of yours becomes poor and his means with regard to you falter, then you are to sustain him like a stranger or a soldier that he may live with you. Do not take usurious interest from him, but revere your God, that your countrymen may live with you. You shall not give him your silver at interest, nor your food for gain. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. You may not charge the poor interest. You may not compound his problem and enrich yourself in the process. Beyond that... God ensured that the poor received a bonus, as it were, every seven years. Every seven years, the fields were to be rested, right? The Sabbath rest for the fields. And and during that rest period, anything that sprung up in the fields was to be made available to the poor. You see it in Leviticus 25 here. Excuse me, Exodus 23 so many references here. Exodus 23 is probably a good, clear one we can look at. Exodus 23, beginning in verse 10. You shall sow your land for six years and gather in its field. But on the seventh year, you shall let it rest and lie fallow, so that the needy of your people may eat, and whatever they leave, the beast of the field may eat. You are to do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Seventh year, you're not to harvest it at all. You're to let the field rest. And while it rests, certain crops are going to spring up on their own, and you are not to take of those crops. You are to leave those crops for the poor and disadvantaged among you. Beyond that, God declared or determined that every seven years there would be a release of debt or better understood as a grace period. A grace period every seven years, meaning that principal payments would, would uh, cease for that seventh year. So when you borrowed money, you borrowed money interest-free and you made payments to repay it. But every seventh year, you didn't have to make any payments on your debt for one whole year. Deuteronomy 15. Deuteronomy 15. Beginning in verse 1. 
At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a remission of debts. Not a cancellation, but a remission of, of payments, a grace period. This is the manner of remission. Every creditor shall release what he has loaned to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor and his brother because the Lord's remission has been proclaimed. From a foreigner you may exact it, but your hand shall release whatever of yours is with your brother. Okay, why does he say there's a payment moratorium in the seventh year? The reason there's a payment moratorium in the seventh year is because the fields in the seventh year are what? They're laying fallow. Thus, the the ability of the poor to work their fields and earn money in order to repay their debts has been taken away from them. And so God says, you you can't extract payments from an unemployed person. And so for the seventh year, they don't have to pay on the debt. Now, if you're a foreigner, you still pay your debts. Why? Because the foreigners weren't required to lay their fields fallow in the seventh year. The foreigners were continuing to work their fields and to gain income in that seventh year, and thus they have to keep paying their debts. It's only God's people. See, when God builds these things in, he, he is thinking about the welfare of his people in this whole process. There's another one for you. God requires that when hired, the poor were to be paid their wages each day at the end of the workday. Deuteronomy 24. Is it okay if I go over for just a couple minutes? Deuteronomy 24. The person who said that has never worked in the nursery. Deuteronomy 24, beginning in verse 14. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land, in your towns. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it, so that he will not cry out against you to the Lord, and it becomes sin in you. James picks this up and says that the the poor are crying out against those that are withholding their wages. Someone who is living hand-to-mouth, here's the idea, someone living hand-to-mouth needs to be paid, the law mandates that he be paid at the end of every workday. Why? Because they cannot afford to lend money to the employer, which is essentially what they're doing by providing labor and waiting to get paid for weeks or months at a time. They need to be paid. On time, at the end of every day. They are relying on it. They are relying on it. A couple more, we'll finish. Beyond that, God granted to the relatives of the poor man, or to the poor man himself, should he later develop the means to do so, that that they can recover any property that they may have sold. That it can be bought back. You see that in Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus 25. Verse 24. For every piece of your property you are to provide for the redemption of the land... If a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor that he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy back what, that, what his relative has sold. Or in the case a man has no kinsman, but so recovers his means as to find sufficient for its redemption, then he shall calculate the years since its sale and refund the balance to the man to whom he sold it, and so return his property. What that means is if you come under temporary economic circumstances which impoverishes you and you are forced to sell off part of your family's uh, estate, then your, your extended family has a right of redemption to buy it and keep it in the family. Or if you later recover your means, you can go and buy it back. It's all about keeping it in the family. Finally, God established a provision that every 50 years, the family of the poor received what was called a jubilee. They received what was called a jubilee. 
And what that means is in the Jubilee, in that year, every 50th year, all debts are canceled. In the seven, every seventh year, the payments are deferred. In the 50th year, the debt is completely canceled. It is completely extinguished. Any property that has been sold is returned. All slaves, all who have sold themselves into slavery in order because of their poverty, are to be set free. It is a complete jubilee, a complete release. Leviticus chapter 25, verse 10. You shall thus consecrate the 50th year and proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. And each of you shall return to his own property, and each of you shall return to his family. Verse 28. It says, if he's not found sufficient means to get it back for himself, then what he has sold shall remain in the hand of the purchaser until the year of the Jubilee. But at the Jubilee, it shall revert that he may return to his property. So if you're impoverished, you have to sell your property, you want to buy it back, but you never have the ability to buy it back, and your relatives don't have the ability to buy it back, then in the 50th year, it is returned to you. It is returned to you. Now, you could immediately lose it again. After the 50th year, it all comes back. And if you make bad business decisions or, or circumstances overcome you in such a way that you could become completely impoverished again. McLean says it well. The law of the Jubilee year only guaranteed a fresh start for the individual, not economic security irrespective of human folly. It gives you a fresh start. It doesn't guarantee that you won't make another bad decision and end up losing it all over again. But if you do, there's another 50 years coming. But what that means is that a father, check it out, a father can't permanently impoverish his children. A father's bad decisions can't permanently create economic catastrophe for all future generations. God gives fresh starts. Well, we've run out of time. We've run out of time. I've given you lots to think about. We're going to come back to this. We'll review it quickly, and then we're going to begin to talk about what are the principles that we can draw from this that we can begin to think about applying today in our own lives. And I think you'll find it very enriching and stimulating. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that all of it is inspired, inerrant, profitable for teaching, reproof for correction and training in righteousness, that we might be complete, equipped for every good work. Our Father, may you help us in this week to come to, to meditate on the things that we have heard this morning. And Our Father, we've gone through this stuff really fast. But, Father, there's a lot here for us to think about. May you bring it to our minds. Help us to turn it over in prayer to lay it before you. And may your Spirit enable us to discern its meaning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.